Today's scriptures are from Proverbs 19 and 31. Proverbs 19, 4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Proverbs 31, 9. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thank you, Allison. What Allison read there was uh, kind of a crescendo that you may not have caught. We're going to come back to those verses. Um, if you're not familiar, we, um, we are going through Proverbs acknowledging. So we, we did, we talked about the power of the tongue. We've talked about anger. Uh, we've talked about lust. And the point of what we're trying to do when we, as we engage the book of Proverbs is recognize that wisdom is created by God for the, the working of the world in, in just the grain of life. Meaning that there are certain things that as you get older, if you're older, you just go, that's how it happens. That's just the way that it is. And we've seen that happen over and over in certain things. That, that God continues to point through wisdom us back to the way that he has wired the world. And today, we're going to talk about the poor. Okay? Um, and it's important because the Proverbs talks a lot about the poor. Um, now, before we get into this, uh, there's a couple prerequisites I need to give before we get into our text that I think are, are worth noting. Um, the first thing is, when I say the poor, um, I need you to understand, just as far as defining terms, I don't mean emotionally poor or spiritually poor. I don't mean, um, yeah, I, I don't mean like there's this, uh, the poor them. Um, I mean, the way that the, the verses, these scriptures read is a very intentional, economically poor. Um, a, there's a book called Rich Christians that I read this week, um, the last couple of weeks, preparing for this sermon. It's a phenomenal book. It's by a guy named Cider that I think is, is worth reading. It's called Rich Christians. He says this, the Hebrew words for poor denotes one who is wrongfully impoverished or disposed. Uh, thus, the primary connotation of the poor in Scripture has to do with low economic status, usually due to calamity or some uh, form of oppression. Okay, So when we say poor, I don't mean the poor in spirit. I don't mean mentally poor. I don't mean like, oh, they're just... They're, that, no, I mean the poor economically, a defining of, poor, uh, of terms. That is what's going on, that, that way of poor. The second thing is, there also, at the same time, needs to be an acknowledgement that, that Proverbs pushes us in the direction that there are certain people who should be poor. Okay? And I don't mean that as like a, they deserve it by birth or something, but, but it talks about, for example, in Proverbs 6, the sluggard. Oh, sluggard, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler, right? The idea being the Thessalonian idea of if you don't work, you don't eat. So Proverbs paints that picture. There are certain people, took a, a guy out, he asked for lunch. I said, cool, you can have lunch, but you're going to have it with me. We sat down for Chick-fil-A, had a good conversation with him. At the end of the day, he simply goes, well, why would I, why would I stop doing this? I get 60 bucks a day for, for, for it. Like, so he doesn't want to work. Right? He doesn't want to work in that moment. And so he has no desire to, to stop in that lifestyle. And at the end of the day, Proverbs is going to speak to his story. Okay? But hear me, that's not who we're talking about. That is not who we're talking about. We're not talking about, oh, that guy deserves to be poor. One, that's not really your call. God determines the heart on this. But two, we're talking about the low economically poor who um, are not there by choice. Okay? 
The third uh, prerequisite that I want to give is there is a huge disparity and difference between American poor and uh, global poor, okay? And I think this is um, pretty much known by all of us, but just by way of a point of reference, I'm going to try to avoid stats. There's a couple I want to share, but usually that gets into my last point, which I'll share in a second. Um, Man, uh, 80% of the world, I had to look this up like 10 times, 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. 80% of the world, okay? So you're in, most likely, if you make more than $10 a day, you're in that higher 20%. Now, the reason I share that is um, because it doesn't just have to be with um, the the deserving poor or whatever it is, but this becomes a real mess in defining poverty. How do you even define who is poor? Uh, George Loud, I think, has a great quote when he says this. Jesus talks, uh, or Jesus takes the Old Testament commandment and redefines what it means to love your neighbor. For him, it means love for anyone in need. Now, I can't sit here and say, well, if you make more than $10 a day, you're not poor. If you make $11 a day, it doesn't matter. You're not poor. We can't do that because there's all these idiosyncrasies that are are worth having a conversation about. But here's what Lad says in this moment. If there is someone who is in need, at that moment, they are more financially not as well off and poorer than you are. And for us to love our neighbor is to step in and uh, fulfill that need, if that makes sense. Here's the fourth thing, um, the fourth prerequisite that I think we need to get into. Um, And this is probably the most important as we dive into some of these text. Um, this cannot be guilt-driven, okay? I need you to hear what I'm going to talk about with you this morning as the, the scriptures come alive. Uh, you need to understand this is not a Compassion International commercial for you to see some poor kid in Africa or India and then you to walk out of here and feel like you need to sign a 10-year commitment with them. That, that's, listen, I need you to be mature about what we're going to talk about. I need you to think like a mature believer, okay? Um, because the reality is, um, we're going to go in and this is going to be difficult. And I know I'm already a passionate guy. I recognize I'm already can be boisterous and loud and intense when I preach, but here's, what's crazy about all this, all this, you could walk away and go, well, I'm never going to sin anymore. I'm selling everything that I have. And I go, that's, that's just not thinking like a mature believer. I'm asking you to process this because here's the reality. The name of the game today is exposure. I think for the most part, we don't even know that we have sinned in this area. And hear me when I say this, I have sinned in this area. I had to call my family together last night of two weeks allowing the Holy Spirit to break me on this thing and go, guys, we have so much. And we had to make decisions as a family, financially where to give, for what uh, uh, what for us to do, for the kids to speak into that. Because at the end of the day, I think as an individual, I needed to repent. As a family, we need to repent. And hear me, as a church, I think we need to repent. The name of the game is exposure. Uh, Amy Sherman in her book, Kingdom Calling, I think says it perfectly when she says this. Many middle class, or many middle and upper middle class Christians live in economically homogenous neighborhoods, worship at churches with little class or ethnic diversity, and work most closely with people from the same class. Without some exposure and engagement with the oppressed, the hungry, or the impoverished, we can easily lack the heartfelt compassion of Jesus. Culturally distant from the poor, we become emotionally distant as well. And sometimes we're not even conscious of it. So the name of the game this morning is just to be conscious of it. I, I want us, because you want to jump out. You, you want to you get away. Okay, I, I don't like how I feel, and so I want to respond. You don't want to sit in lament. I want to respond. You don't want to sit in that, that moment of repentance. 
And that, that's my hope today, that, that we would see it in, in, in that light. Um, now, as we engage this conversation, there's, there's some of this that I, me even having to give some of those prerequisites is, is kind of trippy, right? Because the reality is um, the posture in which the Bible takes about the poor, I don't think is our proclivity, not just as an American, but as a human being. I don't think that we naturally gravitate or think about the poor the way that the Bible naturally gravitates or thinks about the poor. So there was an um, article uh, written by a guy named Brian Zond who said, my problem with the Bible is. And he wrote about the perspective in which the Bible is written, and then we as Americans are reading it. This is what he says. It's a long quote, but I wouldn't read it if I didn't think it was worth reading. This is what he says. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true. Except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by the Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, the story of Rome told by the, op- uh, the occupied. What about those brief moments when the, Israel appeared to be on top? Well, in those cases, the, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspective of the, pe- of the peasant poor and a critique of the royal elites, like in Amos, and he gives this example in Amos, which I'm going to skip over. Every story is told from a vantage point. It has a bias. The bias in the Bible, you ready? Listen to this. The bias in the Bible, of the Bible, is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of the prophetically subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves into the story, not as an imperial Egyptian, Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, but as the Israelites? That's when you get the bizarre phenomenon of the elites and entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. This is the Canaanites. I'm sorry, this is Roman Christianity after Constantine. This is Christendom on crusade. This is the colonialists seeing America as their promised land and the native inhabitants as the Canaanites to be conquered. This is the whole history of the European colonialism. This is Jim Crow. This is the American prosperity gospel. This is the domestication of uh, scripture. This is making the Bible dance a jig for our own amusement. His point is God has always stood with the poor. He's always come alongside the poor and wrote the Bible from that perspective. But what do we do when we beat our chest and say, no, law has to go the way of Christendom? No, no, no. We rely on government because we're a Christian nation. We read ourselves into the text and it was never meant to be that way. The Bible's perspective is from the marginalized It's from the broken, it's from the poor, it's from the widow, it's from the orphan, it's from the hungry, it's from the thirsty, it's from the conquered, it's from the imprisoned, it's from the homeless, it's from the destitute, it's from the marginalized. That's the perspective the Bible is meant to be read, and that's the perspective we're going to read it from. And so I'm going to give you an outline like this. We're going to first start with the plight of the poor. How does the Bible speak? about the poor. What is their lot in life? And then we're going to read a bunch of scriptures that correspond to our responsibility to their plight. Here is how the the, the poor, this is what happens with the poor, this is what goes on with the poor. Well, here's what the Bible says about our responsibility to the poor. 
And then lastly, we're going to read a, a, a gaggle, fancy, a gaggle of scriptures uh, according to God's response to our response. Meaning, here's the plight of the poor. God has called us to do something. Here's God's response and how we respond in him telling us to respond to the poor. Doesn't make sense. Let's do it. Proverbs 19.7. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. You hear that? So uh, from the jump, let's talk about what wisdom is saying. Just acknowledging. Here's what it looks like the poor. This is the reality of the poor. They're alone. They're alone. Now, obviously, Proverbs, not just here, but many times, juxtapositions the rich and the poor. But, but, but I, I think the writer's doing more. God's trying to do more than just tell us that the poor are friendless. This is more than just friendlessness. No, no, no. They're, they're alone. Do you understand? They don't have access like you have access. Maybe even some of them have poor friends, but Proverbs seems to be speaking to something bigger. They don't have the ability, the opportunities, the way. They don't, they, they don't even have the motivation because they don't think it's possible. They are alone. For a moment, think what it was like for you in any time in your life where you felt truly alone. Let that sink in for a moment. Like by yourself, no hope. And growing up homeless with drug addict parents, I felt this many times. And I'm telling you, there's no amount of like, just feel it like this. It's like... I want to die. I want to die. Let me read something to you to to make this real. It's uh, from from a guy in in a slum in in Brazil who truly feels uh, this being alone. He says, sometimes I think if I die, I won't have to see my children suffering as they are. Sometimes I even think about killing myself. So often I see them crying, hungry, and there I am without a cent to buy them some bread. I think, my God, I can't face it. All in my life, I don't want to look at them anymore. This is, this is just Proverbs is putting in front of us, here is what it's like for the poor. They're alone. They don't have access like you do. Solomon, the same writer, speaks in Ecclesiastes 5 the same way. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from a higher up and matters of justice get lost in the red tape and bureaucracy. That's just the way that it is. They're poor. What are we going to do? Don't be surprised by that. No, 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 hear me. They're lonely. Like I said, man, I'm I'm afraid, so afraid for this to be guilt-driven. Like your immediate response is to go grab every single uh, piece of paper from those trees. And and you respond to thinking that's the way. But I want you just to sit in that. And I'm I'm afraid because I want to share some of these stats with you. But I don't want you to think. Stats usually have a, a connotation for you to hear it and go, oh my gosh, I have to do something about that. But this is just reality. The world we live in. Listen to this. Listen to the aloneness of these people, Okay. In the, in the uh, uh, dozen poor countries, nations in the world, this is just fact. A child has a smaller chance to living to the age of five than an American child has living to the age of 65. Do you understand? So their hope of five years of life is less than your hope of 65 years of life. Think of all that could happen in 65 years of life. How many misfortunes, how many ways you could possibly die in that way. That's, the, 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 that, that's there. They're alone. So even as a woman gets pregnant, what hope do you have? You're alone. You're alone. Let me just, I had a couple more, but I'll, let me just share this. It's um, from a book called Poor Economics that I read that 
was also worth the read. 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. They die quietly in some of the poorest villages on earth, far removed from the scrutiny and the conscious of the world. Being meek and weak in life makes these dying multitudes even more invisible in death. Just let that sit. They are alone, and you don't even know that they're dying. I mean, just by by these records, which are 2013 uh, records, 22,000, 22,000 kids dying every single day from malnutrition, from lack of water. It's just fact, y'all. It's just fact. So so there's the plight of the poor. They are by themselves. They have no one. But what's God called us to, to do in that? If that's their plight, then what's God called us to do? Listen to this. Open your mouth for the mutes, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's right before the virtuous uh, woman in Proverbs 31. Listen to how it describes the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, verse 20. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Psalm 82, 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Zechariah seven twelve. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the soldier, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another with your own heart. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Now, if you say, behold, we didn't know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay, uh, repay man according to his works? What's our responsibility? It seems like uh, the, the, those scriptures are doing two things. There's this active approach and there's this a pa- passive way. So the first one you could see in some of these is don't be part of the problem, right? In Zechariah, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the soldier, the poor. Uh, let no one devise evil plans uh, about them, right? Uh, but then also there's this fighting. So it's not just um, don't oppress the poor, but there's also no neutral. So what the Bible isn't doing is being neutral in this sense. It's not going, okay, cool, you're not oppressing the poor, you're good. No, as a matter of fact, it's, it's doing the opposite. It's saying don't oppress the poor and then swing the pendulum and fight for the rights of the poor. Listen to some of the language that's used here. Open your mouth. Fight for rights. Listen, these are all imperatives. Defend. Open your hand. Give justice. Rescue the needy. Hear me. In its simplest form, you want to know what we've been called to do to help the, the, the impoverished, the marginalized, those who are in need. Do something. There is no I didn't know. God knows your hearts. FY, after Sunday, there is no more I didn't know. I just sent you to judgment, y'all. Let's get it in. Do something. Listen to those imperatives again. Hear this. Open your mouth, fight for the rights, defend, open your hand, give justice, rescue the needy. This isn't some abstract. That's you that has been called to do this. Do something. Take the time. Google has afforded you, if nothing else, not to be lazy and say, well, I I didn't know how I can help. There are literally hundreds of thousands of organizations that can step in and help, that you can support financially, that you can be a part of. Do something. Do something. This isn't the time for cliche, give up your coffee so that you can save the food, so somehow you can send it to that Ethiopian kid. No, hear me. Listen to me. 
you've got to wrestle with the fact that those texts are there. And those texts are calling you to do something. And maybe that something is not living in suburbia. Not relying on garage doors and padlocks. For some of you, that is not buying clothes for the next two years. Maybe you don't have to re-up on your NFL subscription. Maybe you don't need the iPhone 15. Maybe. But hear me. Do something. Step in and do something. That's the plight of the poor. This is your responsibility. Now, this is where it gets scary. Because from this moment, the next bubble that we step into is God responding to whether or not we do something. And I was super hesitant. I, like I said, I tend to be super passionate and try to bring the text alive, but this is the first time ever preaching where I felt like I needed to mitigate the text. Go, whoa, this is strong language. I'm not even going to read. You can go read it for yourself. At one point in Exodus 22, it says, if you oppress the widow and orphan, I, I kid you not. So it says, God says, I will kill you and your children will be fatherless. Your, your wife will be a widow. So just prepare yourself for, for some of the intensity of these texts. Listen to this. This is God's response to us responding. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Did you just hear that? All right, let's go. Let's be works-based salvation. Let's do it. Let's just say from now on, it's Jesus and. We need something else. Okay, you want to play that game? You think the church attends? Okay, put all that stuff aside. Let's, if, it's, if it's works-based salvation, here's what Proverbs just said. You want to give to God and earn something? Then give to the poor. It's not the church attendance. It's not the prayer life. You want to earn your salvation, which of course is ridiculous. At the end of the day, give to the poor. Because giving to the poor is like lending to God. That's crazy. I was adopted into high school by a family, and I told them when I left the house, I'll never be able to repay you. All I feel like I can do is one day take people in myself. And, and, and here I stand to go like, <laughs> I, all I can, this is it. God, I could never repay you. But, but to lend to them, to give to them is to give to you. That's a crazy proverb. Listen to Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. You want to continue to, to suffocate? I don't, I don't hear it. I don't see them. I don't know they're there. Hear me. Just based on this text, you won't be answered. You won't be answered. So be careful. Listen to this. In the New Living Translation 28, 27 in Proverbs, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. You will be cursed. And on the, the, the opposite side of this, listen to this, 22.9, whoever has a beautiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. Do you hear that? To, to close our, our eyes and ears, our, our checkbooks to the poor, we will be cursed, but to give to them, we will be blessed. Now, obviously, at the end of the day, we think the prosperity gospel is ridiculous. If you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel, it's give $7, be blessed for seven days, $77, seven weeks, whatever. Okay, this whole, it's, it's crazy. But you read these texts, and you go, there's something to the way that God has wired the world, how he has chosen to do it, that even Oprah can recognize. Honestly, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize at the end of the day, when I give, my life is just better. 
It's just better. Now, that sounds like the prosperity. I give, but hear me. What I love about 2 Corinthians, it says, and the Lord will return, he will give back, but he will give back in righteousness. Because God knows returning you, returning back to you what you gave to the poor, he knows there's something better than money. So he's going to give back to you. That's the prosperity gospel. Give and give and give to the poor because at the end of the day, he will return and give back to you in righteousness. Who wants money? This is, this is beautiful. This is what, yeah, that's some of us. And that's why you need to repent. Um, no, we'll talk about that next week, contentment. Um, so, so here's uh, the great theologian Bono. Uh, I thought this is a great quote when he had said, uh, if you stand with them, he will stand with you. And th- this is what you find in, in Israel's history. Um, Israel, what did they end up doing is they're the oppressed, they're the oppressed. And that's why that quote was so important because as they're the oppressed, sometimes they make it and they end up becoming on top. They end up on top. And what they do is they don't um, become a blessing to the nations. They themselves from being oppressed become the oppressors. That's a sad story of the Old Testament. Actually, uh, to read it to you um, is from Isaiah 1. I, I read this uh, with some leaders last, this last Wednesday because the module is lining up with an overarching tone of justice. But this specifically in poverty, um, the prophet Isaiah is being used by God to tell the people of Israel, you're doing all these things for me, but, but there's a problem. There's a problem. And listen to, to what he says. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. Let me just stop there real quickly. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. I know he just said that. But, but he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's doing is he's talking to Israel. And he says, you want to you act like Sodom? All right, Sodom, listen up. You want to act like Gomorrah? Listen, listen up, Gomorrah. This is what it is. Now, whatever you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sexual morality, whatever, however you process this. Whatever you think about in, the, in all this. However you would see it. Just, just listen to how he describes Israel and describing them Sodom and Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat and fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to, me, uh, when you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meanings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual, annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. That's some crazy language. Check it out. I'm tired of you coming to church. You think this is what I want? I'm tired of hearing your prayers, your scripture memory, your fasting. You think that's what I want. I'm sick of it. I hate them now. I don't even hear it anymore. You think coming to church gets you cool with you and G-O-D. You're good, right? I got it in for, listen, hear me. God in this moment is telling the people of Israel, stop. Now what would cause such ferocious language towards the people of God? What would cause that? Like, like, Like this crazy sexual sin, mistreating, what is it? No, no, hear it. This is why God is so upset. When you lift up your hands in in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourself and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. You ready? You ready? This is why he's upset. You ready? Learn to do good. Seek justice. 
help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of the widows. This is why he's so upset. I've I've never seen all of my reading of Scripture studying so in detail uh, the theology of poverty, such harsh language that God uses when the people of God neglects the marginalized. We need to repent. We need to repent. Listen, I want to give you some practical steps in all of this. But, but hear me, um, there's nothing I can give you, no pragmatic of 10%, no way of going give this and then a love offering to some place in Belize. There's nothing I, I, I can do to help you um, with that outside of simply put in front of you the most important thing that you have to do, and that is question. Because at the end of the day, all of this is a farce if we are not walking in our calling. And so that's what I put in front of you. What has God called you to do? Is it really to live in suburbia? Maybe it is, man. Maybe, maybe you have the means to do that. But, but do you have to? What has God called you to do? What has God called us to do? Because, man, it's, it's like, it's, like um, it's so demonic, the love of money. It's so, like, crazy, the way that greed grabs on a heart, that it's, it's like a gloss over that we don't even ask the question. We're not asking, should I re-up, right? So let, let me uh, allow you into to a little bit of my life. Going into to Walmart yesterday, um, we go to purchase three things. Three things is all we want to buy. And we walk away with 11, okay? Now, they were things that, oh, suddenly I remembered, right? And all the while, while shopping, it feels good to buy something new. We bought new curtains for Eve's room. It feels good. It feels really good to buy stuff. But nowhere in that process was it a stop and question, Now, that may seem like, oh, well, okay, cool. Pastor John, that's cool. That's what you do. No, no, hear me, man. Did you just hear Isaiah 1? This isn't something we play games with. God is going, listen, they are all around you. The internet has brought the world into our backyard. You can look at these kids right now on your phone. They exist. They have real souls. They are going to die of real needs. Needs that we can partake in stopping. So, so just start with that, the calling. But, but what I will do is there are some practical ways that I think you can um, re-up and investigate your own life. And I want to use Pauline theology to get us there. Um, because in First and Second Corinthians, um, the Apostle Paul continues to weave through this, uh, his two letters, this um, offering that's meant to go to Macedonia. And so they're going to they're gonna get this, um, they're going to take this offering. And so there's a couple things that, that I would start with in, in doing these. Um, first, I would consider giving all of you can. Okay, so let's start there. Let's just, let's camp on that for a second. Give all you can. Here's the word. You ready? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Let it hurt. Go without sacrifice. You got like a hundred bucks going into your savings account. You got a retirement account. And I, I don't know, like, 50, maybe, maybe 50 doesn't need to go there. Maybe 100 doesn't need to go there. Sacrifice. What can I give? That's good. Okay, now give more. I'm not, sa- listen, we are not taking offering right now, you guys. I'm not asking you to give to the church. Now listen, we have 
tons of resources that as a church we give to. And if you want to give above and beyond to those resources, I can easily plug you in. But all I'm putting in front of you right now is discipleship with the Lord. And the name of the game in this is sacrifice. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 16 two. It says that each person should give as he may prosper. Now this isn't some small donation because listen at the same correlation to 2 Corinthians 8.3, the same people. They gave according to their means and beyond their means. He says in, in verse two, it was a generous offering. So there's not a robotic 10%. This is what you should give, whether you're, you make you know, $30,000 a year or $300,000 a year. There's none of that. No, no, hear me. Give until it hurts. Sacrifice above your means. The second thing that I think is you should consider, and you may not like this, but here we go. It's in the Bible. Consider the word equality. Like, I'm not pushing for socialism or communism, but let me just read to you what the Bible says, okay? Let's just say Sean didn't say anything and just read this verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 15. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of equality, your abundance at the present time should supply their want so that their abundance may supply your wants. You ready? that there may be equality. I mean, the stats are simple. If you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the top 1% globally. That's just fact. And what we've been told from the Bible is equality. That you look at your life and you go, man, they have so much less than I do. What does that mean? Listen, I I love this because I... Oh, no, I do that a lot. We can use a new music stand if you want to purchase one. Um, okay, L- listen to this. I-, I-, I love this. I think it's, it's uh, uh, worth getting into some of the nitty-gritty of this. Um, this is from a guy named uh, Cider. He's the one who wrote uh, Rich Christians. He says, in Scripture, the words are plain. Now, what do these words mean for the rich Christians who demand increasing affluence while poor Christians in developing nations suffer from malnutrition, deformed bodies, and brains, even starvation? The text says that if we fail to aid the needy, we do not have God's love, no matter what we say. So I'm just putting in front of you quality in your abundance you would give to their lack. And let's just say you want to take the approach that he's talking about believers. Okay, fine. There are plenty of brothers and sisters who will die of starvation today. There are plenty of pastors who need help in churches, being parts of networks. I've seen dudes who are just grinding it out on $2 a day. You have an abundance. They have a lack. Meditate, consider the word equality. Next, um, this is important. Consider the fact that, and I would be a fool not to mention um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, um, that this is voluntary. Like if you, again, walk out of here and you're like, I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to, you've just missed it. Uh, Let me just remind you, again, a fool if I didn't read this. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart and reluctantly, uh, not, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. What happens is if you walk out of here and it's not cheerful, it's not a calling, it's not a conviction, but it's guilt, you're going to sign up to, to uh, give $30 a day to 12 children, right, uh, every single month, and then by March of next year, you for, totally forgot about them, budget doesn't work out. That, that's immature Christianity. What I'm saying is look and go, how can I continue to give more and more 
every year more and more and more and more. The maturity that it would take that goes, yes, this, this should be a joy to give. I love doing this. And if it's not there, then hear me. You, you got to process that. Um, and so this is, that, that's what I would leave you with. Um, I want to read two texts um, to you, uh, and then we can be done. But I want to remind you that as we read these two texts, that it all is going to come back to your calling. I, I led the Start Here class while John was preaching last week. And we watched this little video um, from John Piper where he says, God saved Jim Elliott from, uh, from, of course, John Piper wasting his life. God saved Jim Elliott from wasting his life in suburbia. Listen, this is totally just candidness with you. We, we own a $150,000 home, okay? In owning a $150,000 home, the question that I have to ask is, is that what you've called me to? Have you called me to a $100,000 home? And to give more? And I don't think this is going to be our heir, but just in case, uh, everyone knows that I, I want it to be clean here. Um, has God called me to live in a $200,000 home? I, I've got to wrestle with the Lord. I'm going to stand before the Lord. In all of this, and, and here's the words that have to continue to echo in my mind when it comes to calling. Listen to this. Feel this. Don't jump from it. Don't go to resolving it. Repent. Lament. Listen to this. James two fourteen through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Your faith is dead. I want to help them. No, I want to help them. I'm praying for them. Go, be warm and be filled. I support those organizations. I pray for them. I just, if the text does what it does. Again, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Your faith is dead. And to finish, um, the most terrifying of all the texts that we read today, and I would even say more terrifying than the text we didn't read in Exodus 22, is in a passage we're familiar with. Um, and it's in Matthew 25. And if I can ask you to turn there, we're going to have it on the screen, but I want you to see this in your Bible. I want you to know this exists. This is going to be a reality. The context in which Jesus is painting is one that at the end of days, you will stand before him, okay? This is judgment day. It's very similar to Matthew 7, if you're familiar with the text. This is judgment day, okay? Hopefully you're getting there. I'm going to start. If you got there already, we're going to start in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least Uh, One of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You ready? You ready for this? And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If that would, like, stew, right? Like, um, I think there's two really important observations to not, like, just run from that. Here's the first one. Just sit in that for a second and recognize there is judgment coming. Okay? And I know, like, I know that some of you come from a tradition where, like, sin is kind of not broached. And, like, it's, hear me, judgment is coming. Judgment. To not care for the marginalized of this world, judgment is coming. But that judgment can be missed in this text. That judgment can, can be misunderstood in this text. Because what's crazy is... Um, we can immediately correlate soteriology, which is the study of salvation. We can correlate, if I don't give to the poor, then I'm going to hell. But we miss, actually, it's not, we're not good Bible readers if we do that. Because that's there, but, but, but there's something tagged alongside, the most important part of the verse alongside of giving to the marginalized. And that is relationship with Jesus. Giving to the poor, the needy, the imprisoned, the homeless is a recognition on the Christian's part to understand, to be in relationship. The fact that he identifies with them is to give, to to correspond, and to be in relationship with him. So if we were to follow the thread as the dominoes fall, we go, if we're looking at the marginalized and we're not taking care of them, we understand that we are not participating in being in relationship with Jesus because he's identifying with them. Dare I say, we're not taking care of him. And if that's true, then we've got to go, is my faith dead? It's not knowing Jesus that brings the judgment, y'all. But you can't get close to the heart of Jesus. There is no being a Christian. There is no being all in with him without the questioning. Am I called? What am I called to do? What have you called me to give up? What have you called me to to give away? Where have you called me to go? All of my life, everywhere that I am, everything that I own, all the kids that I have, the wife or husband I'm married to, everything is yours. And in that relationship, we will stand before God. And dare I say, Jesus is going to go, you didn't take care of me. You understand? Understand the intensity of this text. Jesus looks at these people and goes, you didn't take care of me. I don't know if there's any stronger language in the Bible. Words we don't want to hear. And so we're going um, to do one thing. And that's in, in the process of questioning 
in the process of um, wrestling with what these texts say, uh, we're not going to allow our hearts to go and, okay, all right, right, I need to sell my house. And, and that's not what we're going to do. That's not mat- thinking maturely. Now, check it out. I truly wholeheartedly believe God has called some of you to sell your house. Absolutely. God has called some of you to, you don't need two, three cars. God has called some of you to that, to give away 90% of all that comes in. I, I'm not, I'm not going to play. Some of you, God has called you to that. And if for a moment, I just want to clean the slate, quit thinking that's someone else. You understand? God could call that person being the very person you're thinking it would never be, which is you. It's you. But, but to be immature in our thinking is to be like the 17-year-old who comes to youth group and says, it's time to take an offering. He just grabs whatever's in his pocket and he gives it away. But a mature believer goes, okay, this is up in January. I don't have to re-up that. I can give that money to this organization. Okay, next year we have to process this. We got about seven years left on our mortgage. Um, I don't have to consume that. I don't have to have that type of retirement life. You know what? Let's give that money to this church plant. That's mature thinking. That's processing what God has called you to do. Hear me. That, I believe, wholeheartedly is taking care of Jesus. Jesus identifying with the poor, going, all right, Lord, you've called me to do this. I need to rework my life, not my moments. I need to rework my life around what you've called me to do. It's a big difference. So we're going to repent. That's the one thing we're going to do. We're just going to lament that we've been tricked by the devil. We've been tricked by greed. We have worshipped idols. We have been consumers. We have taken. We have mistreated. We have been unjust. And we didn't even know it. We didn't even think about it. And that's what we're repenting of. That we just sat idly by. But no more. Not as individuals, not as families, not as a church. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and kindness towards us. Thank you that Matthew 25, as terrifying as it can be, is inspired by you, given to us as a reminder that you identify with the marginalized and that judgment is coming, that if we do not have a relationship with you, to be in it with you, to identify ourselves with the marginalized, it's all bad. Lord, motivate us through your good grace. Motivate us with the fact that 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says that you, in the midst of talking about wealth, you became poor so that we might become rich. You have called us to be a blessing because you have blessed us. This is true of our souls, but greed has lied to us. So I pray against that force. I pray against those lies. I pray against the intoxication and the inebriation of always wanting to have more and never thinking of the other. We repent of it. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.